Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen, amen. Thank you guys for leading us in that time of worship. Three wonderful, powerful songs that set up this passage of Scripture and this, uh, this sermon today beautifully. So thank you guys for that. Thank you, Emily and Cole, for, for reading and praying for us this morning. And I want to say good morning to you, church, and welcome to everybody who's joining us online. My name is James Valet, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Redeemer, and I have the honor and the privilege uh, to look at this passage of Scripture with you this morning. Um, this, this passage... Uh, is a powerful passage. It is one that God has used tremendously in my life uh, to make me more like his son. And so I am very grateful to be able to look at it this morning with you. If you're just joining us, we are obviously in the book of Romans. We have been going through the book of Romans, preaching through it chapter by chapter, section by section, uh, looking at this letter uh, that was written in the first century by the Apostle Paul, uh, to the Christian church in the city of Rome. Paul writes this letter uh, to the church to explain to them the good news of Jesus, the gospel uh, that he preached. And it is the most thorough and yet concise explanation of the Christian gospel, uh, of the good news of Jesus ever written. I want to read a quote by William Tyndale, who gave his life literally to translate the Bible into English. He said this about Romans, and, and Jason read these in the, uh, the first sermon he preached uh, introducing the book of Romans, but I want to read this quote again. This is what William Tyndale said. He said, Romans is the most excellent part of the New Testament. It is a light into the way of the whole of Scripture. No man, verily, can read it too often or study it too well. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. The more deeply it is searched, the more preciouser things will be found therein. A great 
treasure of spiritual things lies hidden in Romans. And we get to look at some of those treasures uh, this morning as we look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And the main point of this passage is this. Four words. Be what you are. The main message that Paul is trying to convey in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, to the Christian church in Rome and to us today is be what you are. As I was studying that this week, it reminded me of one of the great theological works of my generation, the Disney movie, The Lion King. Um, I asked my wife, I said, can I use The Lion King as a sermon illustration? Will they know what I'm talking about? And she, she assured me, absolutely, everyone has seen The Lion King and everybody loves it. So here we go. This reminds me of uh, what happened to Simba after Mufasa died. Okay, so Mufasa is the king. He's a lion. He's the king. And he's also Simba's father. And there's this scene at the beginning of the movie when he takes him up on this tall rock and he shows me, he says, when I die... All of this kingdom, everywhere the light touches, will be yours. You'll be the king over all of this stuff. And then the bad guy, the movie goes on, the bad guy kills Mufasa, blames it on Simba, and convinces Simba that it was his fault, so Simba runs away to a faraway country. In reality, Simba was the king. But he's denying that and living like something he's not. Until his childhood friend Nala finds him, and says, what are you doing? Wasting your life in this place, like pretending uh, to be something you're not? You're the king. Be what you are. That's what Paul is trying to communicate in this passage of Romans. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. He's saying to continue to live in sin is to live like something you're not. To continue to live in sin after God has justified you and forgiven you and made you new, as Jordan talked about as we sang that song this morning, to continue to live in sin would be to pretend that what God says that you are is not true. So be what you are. Be what you are. So what are we and how do we be what we are? Well, Paul, so far, Paul has already told us that we're justified And he's going to tell us some more of what we are and how we can be that. In Romans chapter 6, Paul begins to explain more of what we are as he describes the reality of our union with Christ and his death and resurrection. He talks about what that reality means as he talks about the results of our union with Christ and his death and resurrection. And then he, he gives the first command found in the book of Romans. And he says, now it's your responsibility to live that way. Effectively saying, be what you are. Here is what you are. Now be that. Be what you are. So first, we're going to look at the reality. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 6. Up to this point, in Romans chapters 1 through 5, Paul has shown us what we are in establishing the reality that we are all sinners, all of humanity, sinful, sinful, broken, in need of justification. Then he has shown us how we can be justified, not by works, not by anything that we do. Only by faith in Christ can we be justified. And then he's explained all the benefits of justification, these wonderful benefits of justification and the blessings of receiving God's grace. Now, in chapter 6, that teaching thus far has brought him to now anticipate a question or an objection from his readers or from his hearers. 
And it's a fair question. If what Paul has taught up to this point is true, then it begs this question. If my salvation is secure because it is of grace and not of my works, it is of the pure grace of God, and God is so great. In the last section, he taught that the grace that Jesus brought us is so much greater than the sin and death that Adam brought that he said this at the end of chapter 5. He said, so where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So the question is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, if that's true, Paul, and my salvation's secure, and I'm saved all by grace, justified by faith, and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, shouldn't I just continue to live in sin so that God receives more glory as he pours out more grace on me and forgives me more? And Paul answers that objection in, chapter, in, in verse 2. So read with me. Romans chapter 2, chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. Paul answers, by no means. Let it never be. That is not the case. Absolutely not. Exclamation point. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Paul says the reality, by no means should we continue in sin, So that grace may abound by no means because when God justified you, God united you with his son Jesus and that changes you. Being united with Christ in his death and resurrection changes you. That's not what you are anymore. God has changed what you are. And then Paul directs to to make his case, Paul supports his argument Um, And makes his case by directing these Christians and reminding us. He says, think back to your baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember that your baptism signified what it symbolized, what it was a sign of. It was a sign of your union with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. That's the reality of what you are. We're united with Christ in his death. So when the Spirit regenerates a person, when the Spirit opens a person's mind to understand their sin to understand the good news of the gospel and to see that as beautiful and desirable and gives that person the gift of repentance and faith and that person confesses sin and trusts in Jesus, the first act of obedience for that person is to be baptized. And baptism is a public profession, right? It's a public profession of that person. When that person is being baptized, they are publicly professing to all who will see and preaching to all who will hear that I am united with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so if you think about baptism, think about it as three steps, really. The first two are an identification with Christ in his death and burial, right? When the person stands up there and says, you know, when the person stands up there, they gives their testimony, and then they're dunked in the water. They're effectively saying, when Jesus died on the cross, He died for my sin. And when he went into the tomb and was buried, he took my sin with him. I am united with Christ in his death and in his burial. 
but we're also united with him in his resurrection. So there's normally a certain uh, death and burial are, are final, normally, particularly burial. In human terms, when we think about that, there's a certain finality that comes with burial. Like when a person passes away and you go to the graveside and that person is buried, there's just a certain finality. This life, according to this life, like it's over. Like they're gone. Jesus died a real death. And concerning this life, Jesus really died to this life. And he was really buried. But praise God, Jesus rose from the grave. And we are united with him in his resurrection. So just as in baptism, or just as Jesus didn't stay in the tomb, so the person being baptized doesn't stay underwater, we bring them back up out of the water. And this is what Paul says in the next verses. Verses 4 through 5, he says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him. So this is the reality. Paul says you are united with Christ. When God justified you, he united you with his son Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And your baptism is a picture of that. Remember what you are. Say, okay, I get that baptism um, is like a symbol of my union with Christ, but what effects does that have on my everyday life? Like, what does that have to do with me not continuing in sin so that grace may abound? So Paul tells us the results of that reality. He talks about the results of our union with Christ in his death and what that means for our everyday life and our union with Christ in his resurrection and what that means for our everyday life in the next section, verses 6 through 10 talks about the results of union with Christ's death in verses 6 through 7. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. So what does this mean for your everyday life, Christian, what you are? He says the reality is, is that when God justified you and he united, with Christ, united you with Christ in his death, sin's enslaving power over you was broken. He uses slavery as an example of this. And slavery was very common in the first century um, as Paul was writing this letter to the Romans. And it was also very different from the slavery that was practiced in America in our country's history, which is a wicked, shameful stain on our past. Slavery was very common in the first century. Paul writes this, and he, and he says, the slave is the unsaved person. And their master, the slave master, is sin. So when a slave died, he or she was free from their master's authority. And he says, being united with Christ in his death means sin is no longer your master. You are set free from slavery to sin. Set free from slavery to sin. Praise God for that truth. Christian, you have been crucified with Christ, united with him in his death. Sin has no power over you anymore. I think it's interesting that Paul, in chapter 5, would say, there's two types of people in the world, right? We've heard that before. Two types of people in the world. In chapter 5, Paul would say, there are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. 
Here, he says, there are those who are separated from God and enslaved to their own sinful hearts. And there are those who are united with Christ and set free from sin's enslaving power. And I think it's interesting that in our world today, in the world, throughout history, people who have rejected Christianity and God because of the desire to be free, like I don't want to have anything to do with God and Christianity because of all of those rules and laws and all of that stuff that God makes you follow. I just want to be free to do whatever I want to do. Right? We see it in our culture today. Right? We need to set ourselves free from all of that oppressing, all of those oppressive Christian morals and ethics that we inherited from our forefathers. We need to be free from that and free to do whatever we want to do, free to choose our own gender, free to do whatever we want to do. The sad reality is, is that's no freedom. The sad reality is that those people separated from Christ are free to do whatever they want to do. That's a sad thing because if I'm free to do whatever I want to do, I'm not really free. I'm bound by my wants, free to do what I want to do. And if God has not given me, where do our wants come from? Our wants come from our heart. And if God has not given me a new heart, then those wants are broken. And that means I'm enslaved to those wants. So that is not a good thing. Those wants, unsaved, unregenerate, Once, if followed, if pursued, lead to a sad, miserable, lonely, broken, regrettable life. So praise God that we are united with Christ in his death and set free from the slaving power of sin. But we're also united to Christ in his resurrection. And the results of that is what he talks about next. The results of union with Christ's resurrection in verses 8 through 10. He says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So not just his death, but his life as well. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. In the life he lives, he lives to God. So Paul reminds us that our union with Christ and his resurrection, the results of that are new life and the ability, new power to live for God. Just as Jesus, when he came back to life, had new life, and died to sin, no more sin. So we, when God brings us back from spiritual death to spiritual life, have new life and new power. Yes, he justifies us. One-time declaration. It's one act and it's done. But he's also given us new life in Christ and the power to live a new life in Christ. So he not only sets us free from the enslaving power of sin, but he gives us freedom, he gives us the power to say no to sin in a new life, the ability to live a life to bring glory and honor to God. Paul prays that we would know this power in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. This power is incredible, the new life and the new power that comes with union with Christ and his resurrection. He says this, Paul prays that these Christians, that we, would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Well, what kind of power is that? Well, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and a power and dominion and every name that is named. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead towards us who believe. 
we have the power to say no to sin and follow God and live a life that's pleasing to God. And that is good news. That is good news to me. It is good news to be free from the enslaving power of sin and to have the power to say no to it and to have the power to say yes to God. I remember all too well, as some of you do in this room, of what it's like to be enslaved to sin, of what it's like to be enslaved to your own sinful hearts and your own sinful wants, under the banner of freedom and like just wanting to have fun. What starts out as fun leads to misery. It started out as fun, and, and through a 10-year period of my life, there was sporadic moments of shallow happiness and moments of fleeting pleasure, but there was never true, never lasting, nothing significant, no satisfaction, no joy. And I believed the lies of my sinful heart. My heart kept lying to me, saying, keep going. Like, you will find happiness there. You will find joy there. Try different things. You'll find happiness. You'll find satisfaction. You'll find joy. Keep going. God, oh, don't worry about God. Like, God is love. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so I kept going and kept going and kept going until I started getting sick of the negative consequences for following the wants of my sinful heart, for being enslaved to the wants of my sinful heart. I started getting sick of these negative consequences, and I realized I needed to change, like something in my life needed to change. And you know what I found? I found that not only could I not change, I couldn't, but I really, I didn't want to. I didn't have the power to change. I didn't have the desire to change. I was enslaved to my sinful heart. I was enslaved to sin. And I remember that leading me into some deep addictions and to some very dark places. It is good news that God not only justified me, but he united me with Christ in his death. That's what I am. And not only that, but he united me with Christ in his resurrection. And that's what I am. So he gave me new life and new power. And I remember the first time I experienced this. I was in jail waiting to go to prison. I'd been in jail for about three months. So I'd, been, I'd been a Christian. I got saved at the beginning of this 18-month sentence. And I, so I'd been a Christian for about three months, pretty new in my faith. But I was reading God's word and spending time in prayer and I was growing in my faith. And I was riding home and calling home to family and friends, quote unquote friends, telling them how different I was, how God had changed me and how grateful I was and how I couldn't wait to get home and just be different. And everything seemed to be going well until there was a couple week period where the letters stopped coming. And then I remember um, getting on the phone call with one of my family members and it just shattering everything. Like, just receiving the news that, like, I had lost all of my material possessions, which wasn't much, but I had an apartment full of clothes and furniture. Everything that I owned was just abandoned in an apartment. And I don't know what they do with that stuff, throw it away or sell it. Lost all of my stuff. None of my friends, except for one. I love you, Chad. All of my friends, one I had nothing to do with me anymore. They are done and moved on. And that my son... was in a less than my son was in a less than desirable a less than safe environment 
and I felt powerless. There was absolutely nothing that I could do about it. I could not do a thing about it. I couldn't change anything about what was happening. And it just so happened that at that moment, I was in a 32-man tank. There was eight four-man cells, and we shared a common space, a day room. It just so happened that at that time, a new inmate was brought into our cell who smuggled in marijuana, smuggled in some weed. And it just so happened that at that time, the guys in my cell had been making alcohol. It takes about two weeks to make it, but they had made alcohol. So I had access to alcohol and marijuana, and I was faced with this opportunity. Are you going to do what you've been doing for the last 10 years and just go get drunk and high and escape? Or are you going to cling to the promises of God? And for the first time, I remember, by the grace of God, I had the power and the desire to say no to sin and yes to the promises of God. And I remember that very distinctly in my life. And it was an incredible experience. So praise God. That is what Paul is saying. Like, praise God for union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. He has set you free from sin's enslaving power and given you new life in Christ. That is what you are. You are justified, but you are given new life in Christ. So praise God for that. And after this good news, Paul then switches to telling us, after he tells us what we are, he basically commands us to be it. So in verses 11 through 13, we see him give us our responsibility He's given us the reality of what we are. He's told us the results of that reality, and now he gives us our responsibility. After this wonderful section of him saying, this is what you are, now he switches. So that's all. Up to this point in the book of Romans, it has all been the indicative. It has all been Paul saying things and asking questions, saying things and asking questions. That's just, that's, that's the indicative. Now he switches. This is the first time we find an imperative, which is a command. So he says, now that this is true, this is what you are, now do this. The first command we find in the book of Romans is right here in verse 11. And for those of you who like application points in a sermon, these can serve as our application points. Romans chapter 6, verse 11, he says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Basically, in this section, Paul gives us two commands. Number one is to consider ourselves, and the second is to present ourselves to God. But first, he says, so you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. That word consider basically means to count it as true or to reckon. I like the King James Version. It sounds West Texas. Uh, To reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Do you reckon that's true? right? That's what he says. Consider yourself. It has to do with our minds and it has to do with our hearts. So we have to know some things and then we have to really deeply believe some things. So we have a responsibility to know. So Paul is saying, so you also. It's like Paul is saying, what I'm about to say is not going to make any sense if you don't know and affirm what I've just said is true of you. Because if you don't know knowledge, if you don't know what you are, then it won't make any sense for me to tell you to be what you are. And now Christianity is not just head knowledge, but we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind. What God has revealed to be true about himself to us in Scripture, we're responsible to know that. How can we love God with all of our, with all of our mind if we don't know him? 
So church, Christians, what are you doing in your life to know more of God's word so that you can know God more? Do you have patterns and habits set up in your life that you may know God so that you can know these things to be true of him? So it has to do with our mind first. We have to know and understand what we are before we can be what we are. But it also has to do with our heart. Paul, this word consider, reckon, has, is closely tied to the heart. One commentator says this, it's having an unreserved inner confidence an unreserved inner confidence in the reality of what the mind is acknowledging is true. So an unreserved inner confidence. Do you have an unreserved inner confidence that you are truly dead to sin and alive to Christ? That's a hard thing. Does your life reflect that you have an unreserved inner confidence that you are dead to sin? Sometimes mine doesn't. If I was to ask your coworkers, is this person dead to sin and alive to Christ? They, oh yeah, dead to sin, alive to Christ, totally. If I was to ask your family, is he dead to sin and alive to Christ? Does he have that inner confidence that he lives like he is dead to sin and alive to Christ? What would your checkbook reveal? What would your schedule reveal? What would your browsing history reveal? What would your hobbies, your treasures reveal? Would they reveal that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ? That you have an inner, deep, unreserved, unfading confidence that these things are true? That's hard. That's hard. And we struggle with this. We struggle with this, I think, for at least, a, here's a couple of reasons that I think we struggle with this one. One is because the nature of our salvation is, is spiritual. Like We don't actually see the Holy Spirit come into us. Like, it can't be physically verified. We don't see God's Spirit come into us and put sin to death and give us new life in Christ. Many in this room or many watching may have become Christians at an early age, and their salvation, their true conversion, wasn't accompanied by any memorable feelings or experiences. So, like, I don't remember dying to sin and being alive to Christ, but it doesn't make it any less true. Another reason, I think the most common reason we struggle with this is what I hinted at earlier— Christians struggle with this, having an un, unwavering inner confidence that it is objectively true that we are dead to sin is because of our daily struggle with sin. Paul, like if I'm dead to sin and it has no power over me, then why do I struggle with it daily? Why do I still struggle with sin if I'm dead to it? And why do I give into it still sometimes? Why does it seem like it still wins sometimes if I'm truly dead to it? Christians still struggle with sin, but the fact that you're struggling is a good sign. The fact that the fight is there is a good sign. It's a sign that the Holy Spirit is in you, convicting you, working in you to get rid of sin. In the next chapter, Paul's going to talk about his own struggle with this. But he's saying we're still to strive for it. We're to still to strive to believe every day, to reckon ourselves, consider ourselves dead to sin. And what he tells us to do here, like consider yourselves dead to sin, this is not just like a power of positive thinking exercise where he's saying just repeat it over and over to yourself again until you believe that it's true. I'm dead to sin and alive to Christ. I'm dead to sin and alive to Christ. No, he's saying believe this by faith. God says this is true of you. So believe it by faith. It is true. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ, even though sometimes you might not feel like it, and regardless of what your past conversion experience is. 
it's true. So be it. Number two, he says we're responsible to present ourselves to God rather than to sin. He says this in verse uh, 13. Paul gives a second command. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So the second command given. To present means like to yield, to offer. So he's saying sin is no longer your master, but you can still, you, you can still decide to present your, yourself to, to be its servant. You can still use yourself and your life for unrighteousness. You can choose that. But also sin is no longer your master, so you don't have to. You can, present your, you can now present yourself to God as an instrument to be used for righteousness. And that is where your joy and satisfaction will be found because that is where God is most glorified. So present yourselves, offer yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. So Christians in the room, like that is Paul's plea. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 13 says, be what you are. Be what you are. This is what you are. God justified you. It's done. Declared you righteous in his son by faith. God's poured out his grace on you through Jesus, and that is wonderful and incredible. He's also united you with his son in his death and in his resurrection. That is what you are. Justified, united with Christ, dead to sin, alive to God. Now be that. Be what you are. And that would be a great place uh, to end the sermon, but there's one more verse. And this verse is wonderful. This verse is wonderful. Paul, it's like he gives a good, bad, good sandwich. He's a good communicator. He gives the good. He says, this is what you are. Indicative, right? This is what you are. You're united with Christ, united with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. This is true of you. You're dead to sin. Sin is no longer your master. You have new life, new power in Christ. These wonderful truths about you. And then he says some hard things to do. Now live like it's true. Now believe it in your heart of hearts and have an unwavering confidence that that is true of you and live like it. Present yourself to God every day as an instrument to be used for righteousness. And that's hard. So he tells us the good, then he tells us some hard and then he, makes, he, he switches back to the indicative mood, and he says one more blessed truth. It's as if he's saying, it is going to be hard. I know you're going to struggle with sin daily. I know it's going to be hard. But remember this truth. Here is this promise in verse 14, and this has been a life-changing from the moment of my salvation or from the, my early years of being a Christian to today. This is one of my favorite and most precious passages in all of Scripture. Verse 14, he says, for sin, he promises, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. The first eight words of that verse have just changed my life. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. That is a powerful, precious promise to me, like sin Sin that promised me joy, but delivered slavery and misery. Sin that promised me happiness and satisfaction and just led me to just ruinous, miserable addictions. Sin that led me to follow the desires of my own bent, broken, wicked heart. 
caused me to love myself so much that I was willing to put my family at risk. Sin that led me to waste all of those days and months and years in jails and prisons and rehabs, waste so much of my life. Sin that led me to loneliness and misery and despair. That sin has no dominion over you. That's a powerful promise to me. And I hope that it is a powerful promise to all you in this room who have trusted in Jesus. Sin has no dominion over you. Be encouraged by that. That is a promise made to you. And live like it is true. And if there is anyone in the room or watching online that doesn't know Jesus, and maybe you're realizing for the first time that sin is your master. Maybe it looks differently than mine. I hope it does. Maybe, you're, maybe it looks like lust or pride or selfishness or anger, bitterness, whatever it looks like in your life. I pray that you see that sin is a cruel master. And if you continue to follow it down that road, it will lead you to some horrible, dark places. And I pray that you would turn from that and trust in Jesus. Let sin get off the throne of your heart. Turn from your sin and let Jesus take his rightful place on the throne of your heart. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. He'll declare you righteous and make you new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for being our perfect Father in heaven. God, I thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. I thank you for giving us this identity that we can know. God, I thank you that we can know what we are. We can know that we are justified because of your grace. We can know that we are being sanctified because of your grace. God, but as we sang earlier, our hearts are prone to wander. So I pray that you would give us the grace to not only know what we are, but to be what we are. To offer our hearts to you daily. To present and offer ourselves to you every moment of every day. God, by your grace, may we believe that's true and may we live it out pray that the Christians in this room would be edified and made more like Christ because of your word this morning. And if anyone is far from you today, God, I pray that they would see you as beautiful and wonderful and as a God who forgives, a God who's not oppressive but liberating and eager to save all those who come to him in faith. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, and we worship you now because you're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.